Hi, I'm Dee Sterling. I'm a lover of language and languages. I'm a storyteller. I'm also a businesswoman and the co-founder of Center for Entrepreneurs. Welcome to my podcast, Double Espresso with Dee. Over coffee, a very strong one in my case, I will get curious with my guests about their journeys in life and business and how they practice living courageous, creative and interesting lives. Hi, everybody. I'm Dee Sterling. Welcome to Double Espresso with Dee. I am beyond excited to have my fabulous guest, Alice Coat, join me today on the show all the way from Vancouver. Alice, how are you? Hi, Dee. How are you? So excited to speak with you today. Me too. And it's definitely Double Espresso time in Vancouver. So um, do not hold back. So Alice, oh, of course you've got your coffee to hand. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'm, I'm super excited to see you and super excited for you to uh, share with us your story and some of your journeys so far. So just by way of mini preamble uh, to your many accomplishments, you are a businesswoman, you're an entrepreneur, and in the midst of being both of those, you have found time to become an Uber coach to teams all over the world. We'll come back to that. You've worked in the corporate world. You subsequently took the entrepreneurial leap and launched a remote digital marketing agency, Pivot6. What a wonderful name, uh, with clients ranging from tech, uh, finance, FMCG, and so forth. And you rapidly scaled that business. For the past 15 years, you have been also, whilst building businesses, working with teams across the globe in startups, in VC-backed and also in major global conglomerates, helping grow talent, promote talent, and also, I guess, work on integrating teams that can perform better and so forth. So we're going to come back to that because I am all about the people as are you. And I know there's a lot to discuss on that theme. Um, Today as well, you are the marketing and communications director of a VC-backed Series B tech business, which is scaling fast. And you're part of the senior team taking it to the next level. So how do you pack it all in for starters? Focusing on health <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, health is wealth, in my opinion. And oh, um, if you're not properly grounded, if you don't have a really good stabilizing routine that sets you on a good path at the beginning of the day, none of the other stuff can happen. So for you, Alice, what does that look like? How does your day start? I wake up and I do some form of meditation and it could actually be a form of deep breathing right? just to center myself, remind myself of my values, my vision, the intention for my life. And I always start off my day with movement, actually. I am a very high energy person and I find that when I get my movement in and I get my endorphins flowing in the morning... The rest of my day just flows. Oh, I'm totally with you. And and also, if I don't do it, then it's harder and harder as the day goes on, right? So I think also, uh, I didn't say this, someone else did. It could have been Aristotle, but we become our habits in the same way we become the company we keep. You know, these are really fundamental things about how we live our lives. So Alice, tell me about you know, your early life, because obviously you live in North America, you've been in Vancouver for many years, but you have um, very interesting heritage with your family's Chinese origins. Talk us through that a little bit. And, you know, now as an adult, looking back, how that's informed the person you've become, uh, your interests in life, your lens on life, shall we say, and, you know, the choices you've made. Wow, Dee, that's a really great question, and no one's ever asked me in that way before, so I really thank you for asking. Of course. I'll say my parents um, are Chinese immigrants to Canada, um, so right now I'm, I just, I would like to acknowledge that I'm located in Vancouver, which is situated on the stolen, ancestral, and occupied lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. So, so in the interesting. 80s, yeah, thank you. Um, my parents were born in China. They went through the Cultural Revolution separately, and they immigrated to Vancouver in the 80s. Dee, they were actually in an arranged marriage, which I think right. is so foreign to so many of us. They were in an arranged marriage for reasons that they had to be in. And because of that, I actually had a very complicated, <laughs> conflicting childhood. 
Right. I didn't actually grow up in the happy-go-lucky rainbows and butterflies childhood that a lot of my friends did. But I actually think because of that, that's why I became so interested in people and relationships and communication and psychologically safe teams as a part of my career because I didn't experience that when I was younger. So I became, in a way, obsessed with that. Right. So interesting. And what language did you speak at home or do you speak with your family today? So I, right now I speak English. I also speak Cantonese, which is the dialect uh, they speak in Hong Kong. I also lived in Beijing, China for a little bit. So I speak a little bit of Mandarin and I also lived in Medellin, Colombia. So I speak some Spanish as well. Oh my God, a, a real polyglot. I absolutely love that, Alex. I think Alex, everybody needs to speak languages, you know, it needs to learn languages. It's not just about the words, it's about it's about the exchange, it's about the connections, it's about the idiom, you know, which is also a metaphor for how different cultures live and how they operate and so forth. So Alice, coming back to today, obviously you've packed an awful lot in so far. I would love to discuss people and the role of people. And I would also love to discuss range. And if we start with people, you know, I am tech mad. I love technology. I embrace technology. I'm super excited about today. I'm very excited about the future. I am not that person, that businesswoman, that friend, that mother, that daughter who's looking with eyes in the back of my head, you know? And I also see even with my children who are basically adults, you know, I don't want to be the parent who's saying, oh, well, when I was at school, I learned Latin like this and I did this. You know, I'm excited about what they're doing and how they're learning and so forth. So, um, you know, there are individuals who think that people are going to disappear and will be replaced by robots. I'm definitely not in that camp. But how did you find time and, and where was the moment or when was the moment and, and possibly where to that you decided you wanted to take your wide range operational skills and expertise from, you know, the, the, the good old days when you started at KPMG and, you know, became CPA, CA and so forth, right through to launching businesses, your operational skills, your human resource knowledge and expertise, your marketing and communication skills. When did you decide to take all of that and launch yourself into working as, as a, a coach? I know you're, you're, you've got specific trainings in certain methodologies and so forth, like Gallup and strengths and so forth. Tell us a little bit about that and the genesis of it. Okay. Well, when I was younger, I wanted to be a reporter. I was so interested in communication and stories because we are the stories that we tell. Humans are connected through shared experiences, right? But I'll admit The big four came to my university and sold me on the concept of being a chartered accountant. And it seemed lovely because you would get to travel (laughs) and you get to work all around the world. And it was very prestigious. So I fell into that camp. But I knew pretty quickly as soon as I started at KPMG, as lovely as it was, as amazing as their training was, I knew it wasn't for me a long time because Similar to you, Dee, I wasn't very interested in looking backwards. And when you work in accounting and audit, it is very much about, well, what happened in the past? Can we validate that? And I bet, Dee, right. if you do, if if you've done your strengths assessment, you probably have the strength of futuristic. And so people who have the strength of futuristic, they're very, very good at thinking about the future. They're visionaries for other people. They easily look three, five, 10, 20 years ahead. And that's what they're good at. That is one of my strengths. And so I knew I had to leave the world of corporate finance um, accounting. I did try to work in-house for a little bit. I worked at uh, a few French conglomerates, Louis Vuitton, Remy Cointreau. Again, amazing training grounds, but I didn't feel fulfilled, right? Yeah. And then I started to think, okay, well, I'm not being filled by looking in the past. Why don't I try to actually move into marketing? You know, marketing was very booming at the time in, you know, 2010, 2012 with all the startups. And like you, I'm very passionate about technology. We have all these amazing resources at our disposal. Why aren't we leveraging more of it? So I moved into marketing for startups, and that's how I launched my own agency. But I guess throughout my career, I've worked with so many different people. I've had so many different managers. I've worked on so many different teams. And what I realized is, at the end of the day, 
no matter what you're doing, whether it's accounting, finance, marketing, working at a startup, it all comes down to the people you're working with. Oh, totally. And how that group functions together in their own ecosystem, right? Exactly. So the, and you mentioned this earlier, but I really believe the value of your life, you can derive that from the value of your daily interactions. And so, so many people work with their coworkers. They see their coworkers more than they actually talk to their own friends and family. And so if you don't have that good rapport and that camaraderie and that feeling of safety and good communication, what else, what, what matters? And so that's where I really veered into, well, actually, I would love to coach teams and how to bring dysfunction into function. How do you build a psychologically safe space for one another? Totally. And tell me, give us some of the highlights of those experiences, because at the end of the day, people are people, you know, and the dynamics can shift in terms of the size of the business, its physical and emotional architecture, its geography, the product. But I think the fundamentals are the same, you know, people's desire for integration, acceptance, you know, the really fundamental uh, themes, um, being happy to your point, feeling fulfilled and feeling uh, that they are doing something where their talents are being used and exploited, interaction. What have you seen in the shifts in the time that you've been working with teams, possibly because of the advent of technology, forget even the past year, and we'll come on to that. But, you know, people working in different locations remotely, because in tech, people have been working remotely for 25 years. It's nothing new, right? Um, I mean, there are certain tech companies that virtually everyone is, is, is virtual. So what shifts have you seen in that time? And what have been the things that have really stood out for you in terms of what people are looking for, their behaviors, that type of thing? This might sound a little cliche, but there's definitely been a shift in treating others like human beings. Right. 15 years ago, when I started my career at KPMG, there wasn't a focus on mental wellness. There wasn't a focus on the people aspect. There, nobody really cared if you were burnt out. In fact, if you had to take an extra day off, you were probably looked down on and you felt worried that you wouldn't progress in your career or get a good performance review. Right. The human aspect was lacking. And I think with the growth, especially of social media, right? So around, like I said, early 2010, when social media really started to become its own function in business. And then you had the rise in burnout, you had the rise in internet addiction. And then all of a sudden people just started realizing, oh, there's probably more to work than just getting stuff done. There's more than the projects. There's more than transactions. There's also the people aspect. Because of the rise in social media, there was this increase in vulnerability. People started sharing their stories. I'm burnt out at work. I'm not fulfilled. I want to change my career. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm having a midlife crisis. There was just this rise in vulnerability. And so with that, that started to integrate into the workplace as well, I think, in the last few years. Do you find that um, with, you know, some of the teams you've worked with, because you've worked with people in all sorts of businesses at all sorts of stages and also stages of success and growth, right? And people of different ages, you know, some of the language used today, of course, it existed in, in the English language, so to speak, but no one used it. You know, when I started my career, no one talked about burnout as much as they do today just to, the, to your point, right? You just got on and did the job. <laughs> and if you moved around too often, that was like a major no. Whereas now it's absolutely not frowned upon. It's the norm. Have you seen very big differences? Uh, not that we wish to be ageist, but with people of different generations and how they view all of this and how they accept it? Because obviously some of the businesses you've worked with and work with are run by people who are highly experienced. They've been in the game 30 plus years. They've got a certain view of the world, right? I love how you said we shouldn't be ageist, and I agree. <laughs> I, I do find that there are generational differences. It's not so much, though, because of the age itself. It's did an individual, has the individual, quote, kept up with the times? Are they aware of how different generations like to work? Are they aware of the different values of the people they might be managing? Are they aware of the workplace trends that, hey, millennials are leaving very high-paying jobs? 
are they aware that people want to work for a company because they want to feel fulfilled? It's not just about a paycheck. So I've certainly met people who are older, who don't have an open mind to all that. And then I've also worked with people who are older who are very, very much on top of those things. So it's really about how much do you keep up with what's going on in the world around you. And I think we can reference, um, you know, Darwin's famous quote, it's not the strongest that survive, it's those who are most, right, resilient to change. And, and the most agile, right? Exactly. So if we look, if we, if we, um, become a little elitist momentarily. Um, and I know when one is coaching, this is not how we see people because that's the beautiful thing about coaching, isn't it? In the corporate world, everybody can learn. I call it micro shifts. Everyone can make little micro shifts that make them higher performing or more efficient or just happier in what they do. And if you're happier, you're going to probably do a better job, right? But what are the themes you see with those who, um, the overperformers, right? What are the traits that you see? I mean, this is a subject that's been massively covered, books written on it, and there are lots of different theories, but I would love to hear and direct from you because you've got such a beautiful personal experience of working with these types of people in different contexts. What are the themes that you see and what is your advice to people, you know, who really want to go the whole way? Okay. I love the term micro shift, by the way, Dee. <laughs> We cannot expect a full 180 from anybody nowadays. It's all about those little daily changes. So thank you for referencing that. Um, this might actually be a good time for me to start talking about Gallup's strengths because... Yes, please. Be great to have an overview of what that is for those that don't know. Yeah, so Clifton Strengths is a methodology that was developed by a psychologist named Dr. Donald J. Clifton almost 50 years ago. So there's been a lot wow. of research... A lot of research that has gone into this, and I can talk about the difference between Gallup strengths versus a lot of the other personality assessments. That would be Myers super Brigg. helpful. Yeah, Myers Briggs, insights, colors. Um, but the main difference is really the amount of research that has gone into this. There have been many, many technical reports. They've done multiple studies to validate the validity of this framework. So, on a very, very high level, the premise is that. Everybody is unique. D, you're unique. You have a I unique set of strengths. <laughs> you are. I say it all the time. <laughs> I mean that we are, on, not just me. <laughs> based on the statistics, you are one in 33 million. Oh my gosh. Based on a strengths profile, what is the likelihood that somebody else has the exact same strengths as D in the exact same order is one in 33 million. And so what does that mean? That means that you're going to be motivated by different things. You're going to show up in the workplace differently. You're going to show up in your personal life differently. You're going to show up as a businesswoman, a mother, a friend differently than others. And so again, the premise is that once everybody is aware of their unique strengths, that is actually how they're going to maximize their success. That's how you're going to reach your goals is by focusing on the things that you're good at, not the things that you're not good at. And especially in you know, our society today, we are so focused on our weaknesses. We are oh, so focused on- more. It's all wrong we, in my view. Exactly. <laughs> we are so focused on being more well-rounded and I have to get better at something that I'm not naturally good at. But under this premise of positive psychology and strength psychology, that is wrong. So let me ask you something, Dee. What does it feel like when you write with your non-dominant hand? It feels a little strange and a little awkward. I mean, I'm slightly odd in that I, I'm right-handed, but I do quite a lot of things with my left hand. And sometimes I make myself use my left hand just to use some other muscles, you know, just to kind of, I don't know, make some little shift in myself to, to, to not get lazy. But of course, I'd never write a letter with my, my left hand ever. So it's, it's wow. like, you know, it's like, it's like if you break your arm, right? And you have to use your other arm to brush your teeth in the morning or something, right? It's, it feels weird. It feels awkward. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't flow. Well, you are certainly of the growth mindset, but I'll repeat some of the things you said. You said it feels weird. It feels a little bit awkward. It doesn't flow. It's not natural. This is how people feel when they try to do things that they're not naturally good at. So let me ask you the opposite question. When you write with your dominant hand, yeah. what does that feel like? Oh, it feels great. And also the thing is too, I, um, I am actually one of those rare people that likes writing, physically writing. I, I always have a notebook, even if I'm, you know, on my screen or whatever, I have a notebook, I have a pen, I love paper, I love 
ink. I love fountain pens. All of that. There's a beauty to all of that to me, you know, like I'll write a handwritten note. And sometimes people practically cry, send them a little note. And like, my God, you know, the last time I got a note was like 45 years ago. Because <laughs> we don't do that, you know. There's something um, beautiful about that. I'm digressing slightly, but that act of writing something on a page. And I think, you know, that's slightly coming back in. I'm seeing, you know, a renaissance of paper and paper companies despite the trees. And, and you know, I don't think it's going to harm the trees that much because so few people write. But it's a, it's a lovely thing to write, you know, and to use the hand that I can write with. Do it properly, I guess, to answer your question. And listen to how excited you got when you thought about writing a letter with your dominant hand. I hear excitement. It feels more natural to you. So it probably feels the opposite of weird and awkward, right? Feels natural. Yeah. And so here's the thing. Everybody has a set of natural strengths that they are naturally good at. Dia is naturally good at certain things. And when you focus on those strengths, that's how you're going to achieve success. This is how you have achieved everything you have, right? This is how you have launched launched a business. This is how you've launched a podcast by leveraging your strengths. Okay, so there's four categories of strengths. The first Mm -hmm. category is strategic thinking. So these are strengths that come alive when you're processing information and making a decision. The second category is executing strengths. This is what we call getting stuff done strengths. The third category, relationship strengths. So these strengths come alive when you're interacting with other people. How do you relate to others? How do you communicate? How do you empathize with them? And then the last category is called influencing strengths. Right. These are strengths that come alive when you're motivating other people to action. How do you inspire people? How do you get someone else to do something? So if we're going to talk about the overachiever, achiever is one of the 34 strengths identified under the executing talents. Right. And so people who have the achiever strength, let tell me if this reminds you of yourself. So people who have achiever, they have a strong work stamina. They love to finish things. They love to check things off on their to-do list. In fact, sometimes they even make a to-do list just to cross something off. They make to-do lists on the weekend. That's what they're good at. They are good at getting things done. Right. That's the achiever strength. With every strength though, there's a blank spot, an Achilles heel. When you're overusing your achiever, what it looks like is the burnout that we talked about. Right. High achievers sometimes don't know how to say no. They burn the midnight oil. They'll work even though it's impacting their health and their personal life in a negative way. That's what the achiever looks like on a bad day. We call that strengths on steroids. So once you're aware that you have the strength and you're aware of this Achilles heel, you can work to actively manage it because now you can go into the workplace and know, I know I'm a high achiever. I know this is how I've been successful. And at the same time, I need to manage it. I need to make sure that I don't overwork. I need to make sure I don't take too much on. I need to set up a system. Yeah. So I can get back to equilibrium where my achiever strength is working in flow. It's working for me, not against me. Also, Alice, you're making me think of the point that, you know, knowledge is power. And, you know, people like you and I love learning and we really put a big value against lifelong ongoing learning. And we will come back to this because I know you have some other interests that you explore, you know, which are not superficial explorations either. But if you think about someone making a shift, so for example, you know, your friend wants to run a marathon, you can do it with them, you can encourage them, you can't do it for them, right? And I think in business, a lot of the tension and a lot of the issues emerge from interactions, right? And how people interact. And, you know, it's, you know, what we might call egos in the room. It's, um, posturing. It can be insecurity or feeling threatened by peers or uh, or others in your work environment. What sort of um, counsel do you offer to those very high achievers who ultimately aren't necessarily uh, em- empathetic? They're not really that interested in other people. 
they're smart enough to get the right team around them, but they're not that interested in who they are, what they are, or just over and above, you know, transacting and helping them to scale and build. Because it's one thing saying to someone, you've got to be a bit more inclusive in every sense of the word to your people. You've got to be a little bit more sensitive. You know, these just become words that people don't have the tools to actually shift their behavior, right? So what is the the learning and how do those sorts of people learn? Uh, What are the tricks, if there were any, for them to lead from the front, but come across as real, authentic and vulnerable leaders? That's a great question. If we stay on this achiever theme, people who have high achiever, that is one of the Achilles heels. They can become so focused on the work, on achieving the tasks, on meeting the revenue goals of getting the next round of funding. Sometimes they forget about the people aspect of things. And one of the things that I've personally experienced uh, when working with teams, what really sets off a light bulb in these Mm -hmm. high achievers is when they realize that they need other people to Mm -hmm. get stuff done. As we discussed, it's impossible for somebody to be good at everything. And we call this concept in strengths, partnerships. Everybody needs a strengths partner because D is good at some things, Alice is good at other things, and together we need each other because one person cannot carry the entire weight of a group, of a team, of an organization. Yeah. And so we talked, you talked about how important awareness is. So once these achievers build that self-awareness of themselves, learn what their natural strengths are, learn what their Achilles heels are, and then they learn those of the people around them, they start to see, wow, I can actually start to achieve more If I start to learn more about the people I'm working with, actually take the time to understand, well, how can we work better together? What complementary skill sets do we have? Totally. So it's really about building the self-awareness, building the awareness of their team, monitoring that in real life, and then starting to actively manage it by figuring out what partnerships they can build and actually realizing that when they work with others and when they start to care, they're actually going to achieve more. A hundred percent. And did you, um, in your businesses or those businesses that you work with, uh, use uh, mechanisms such as reverse mentoring much where, you know, senior people can learn from more junior people across the ages, the generations and so forth? I have not heard of that term reverse mentoring, but I really love it. <laughs> right. So I, this is something that we've been looking at in some of our businesses recently, where essentially, you know, the graduates or the new hires or Uh, the younger generations might be a mentor for the CEO, who's probably more experienced if they're the CEO, or the head of finance, or, you know, it's really across different age ranges so people can learn from one another. Because I also think that's very important to our point about being plugged into the world around us, right? Knowing what's going on out there, as opposed to this is how we've always done it and will continue to operate in this way, right? You're also making me think, Alice, I mean, absolutely in your case, because you are incredibly accomplished and have such a range. And I love this word range. And in essence, you know, some of the things that you've said have really resonated with me because often we do, well, even from when we're kids, right? We talk about expertise and putting the hours in and, you know, you want to be good at piano, you've got to do piano every day after school or whatever it is, um, or be in the swim team every morning in the pool at five o'clock, et cetera, from age of six. There's a lot of forced specialism. I think, in the education system in the Western world, whether it's North America, whether it's Europe, whether it's the UK. And this expectation also very often of very young children that they can keep it up, they can keep it going, and that they just focus on that one thing. So in a way, if if you're very good and then you become even better and show real talent in a skill, be it a sport or other, that can be very life-affirming. Often it's not the case. We know that, you know, sad, the sad story is there's only one winner, you know, (laughs) at Wimbledon. Um, And if you're in sport, you're in it to win if you, you know, if if you pursue it aggressively and you, you progress and so forth. But I'm a great believer in range and developing different skills by doing different things and exploring different activities, different, you know, it could be sports, it could be learning different languages, it could be accumulating those skills over time 
the way you have, or perhaps I have in slightly different contexts, and using those in each new situation. Um, tell me your views on that and what you see among the leaders that are the most accomplished that you deal with. First of all, D, I feel like you must have read the book Range by David Epstein. Oh, I've read that too. Which is one of my favorite books. Yeah, yeah. it's brilliant, We're on the it? same page. Brilliant We're book. on the same page. Yeah. Yes, everybody on the, uh, listening to this podcast should definitely pick up a copy of Range or download the audiobook. So to answer your question, I mean, just to pull out a few facts from the book, the book is all about why generalists succeed in the world over specialists, but we have been made to believe that specialization is where it's at, right? We talk about being a jack of all trades or a Jill of all trades and how that's not good. But if you read the book, it actually makes the case for being a generalist. And they pull a lot of examples, as you know, Dee, from athletes, from different um, professions. And so the premise is that if you have a range of skill sets, maybe you've worked in a range of industries, maybe you've done a range of jobs, your world is a lot greater because you have been put into different scenarios that you wouldn't have if you had just done one thing. Totally. So the leader, the best leaders that I know, and I'm sure do you would agree, the best leaders that I know are very open-minded. They're open-minded and they are not afraid to admit what their, quote, weaknesses are. They know what they're good at. They also know they, they're really good at knowing what they're not good at. They know. So they are able to identify who they need to work with, what kind of fellow partners, fellow leaders that they need to surround themselves with. And they totally. are just open because they know that there is more than one way to do things. They know that there is more than one way to look at a situation, to build a plan, to launch a product, to get funding. And they're, they're aware that, hey, you know what? My way is not the only way. Let me bring in a few other people. I've seen it done this way in one industry, and I've seen it done another way in a different industry. They're open to it. Oh, totally. And I think as well, you're reminding me of something I reflect on, and I really believe in myself, that, you know, we shouldn't just be focusing on our weaknesses, which is the norm, you know, the things that we're not strong at. It's a bit like, um, you know, they used to be called weaknesses, but now to be a little bit more politically correct, it's areas for growth or some such. And, you know, whilst I believe in lifelong learning and growth, there's no point in, you know, putting someone who's a profound introvert and doesn't want to engage every day, all day, front of house in that type of role. Put them where they shine, you know? And I think we're still slightly stuck in the corporate world with this mentality of, you know, things to fix, right? Because at the end of the day, people don't need to be fixed. You know, they're probably just fine as they are, right? That's absolutely right. D, if you do the strengths assessment, I bet you'll have maximizers of strength because people who have the maximizer strength know that. They know that they don't need to focus on their weaknesses because remember, I'll go back to the premise. People are not supposed to be perfectly well-rounded. We are sharp in certain areas like stars. And I've actually seen this in the workplace. I've seen people who are better at strategic thinking, executing. They probably have very high analytical strengths, high analytical, high, big introverts, love to think, love to process information. They're not so strong at the relationship building strengths. And you know what? To your point, that's okay. Yeah, Don't it doesn't put those really matter, people right? Exactly. Don't put those people in the client or customer facing role where they have to sell, where they have to do expansion deals. That's not what their strengths are. I totally agree with that. Put them into the role that their strengths are suited right. for. Right. So Alice, coming back to you and coming back to, you know, this year that's been, that, you know, has been a a, a strange year and, and a, a year of reflection for many, a year of hardship for many. Tell me about your observations and any shifts that you've seen in working with, you know, teams of different kinds, you know, what's changed, if anything notable? And then I'd love to talk a little bit about you and all your other interests that you somehow might find time to uh, focus on. But let's let's start with this past year. Gallup just released a report called the 2021 State of a Global Workplace, and it's a free report. I recommend it to any everybody. And the report is very comprehensive. It actually talks about the changes 
by country and region. Right. So it will talk about changes in Europe versus North America versus Asia and Africa. Anyways, across the globe, they found that obviously with the pandemic, I mean, and we talked about this earlier, the impact on mental wellness and then therefore the impact on how engaged employees were, right? Without mental wellness, if employees are not feeling mentally well, not feeling healthy, how can they bring their best selves to work? They can't. Yeah, it's impossible, right? They, they, they really, really can't. And so there was more of a focus on that. So you saw, you saw a lot of companies, more so in tech, I'd say, really shift even more. So for instance, uh, the company that I'm at, Procurify, we went to a four-day work week. Right. That's a huge cost to the company, right? That's a huge cost, but they understood that this is something that we need to do to ensure that everybody is thriving. Because if everybody is burnt out, if they're disengaged, we are not going to be able to meet our goals. We are not going to be able to meet our revenue targets. And then therefore, as a result, we won't be able to raise more funding. So I saw a lot of companies shift their mentality around flexible working days. And then as for the actual people, it's interesting. Managers actually became a little bit, quote, better. They actually became more self-aware of their teams. They were very worried about... Are my team members engaged? Do they feel mentally well? Do I need to help them? Are they going through anxiety? Are they depressed? So that was good. But on the flip side, the manager's engagement actually went down in 2020 because managers are managers slash leaders, um, founders are so busy taking care of other people, but oftentimes they're the forgotten bunch. So it's actually really important if you're a manager or a leader or founder, you also have to take the reins on your own mental wellness and health. A hundred percent, because as we know, and it sounds so supremely cliched, but you know, when you're at the top, it can be a bit lonely because you don't have a friend to talk to for all the reasons we know. It could be a company of five people or 25,000, right? You know, often those individuals feel that they don't have, an, you know, and that's also the role of a senior advisor or a coach in many cases to, to be able to speak to an equal and know that it's completely confidential and contained and that they have support in other ways, you know? Exactly. And this is why so many founders will have either a peer group, they'll have a peer founders group, they'll also have a coach, and many of them will also have a therapist. In fact, you did see many mental health startups, especially in the Silicon Valley area, launch. Totally. So there was, totally. there was a startup called Pace Group that launched um, during the pandemic, and they were focused on group therapy in different categories. So for instance, if you were a founder, you could join the founders group. If you were a senior leader, you could join the senior leaders group. So interesting. If you were if you were an employee with kids, you could join that group. Yeah, and uh, th- so I did see that, especially in um, uh, Canada and the U.S. That was definitely a shift in the workplace. And here too, as well. I mean, the number of um, health and wellness related apps, anything from meditation, which has been obviously going for a long time, there's been lots of lots of apps coming out habitually over the past five, six years, if not more. But uh, mental health apps for corporates to offer to all their employees. You know, it could be a guided meditation. It could be something a little bit more comprehensive if you needed it. But as coming back to you, you know, you spent a lot of time running businesses, supporting others, you know, back to your interests. So somehow or other, because you are a pioneering superwoman, you managed to fit in the time. Tell us about Columbia and, you know, the other things that are on your radar. I know you're very interested in Bitcoin and blockchain and you go out and you learn in a very in-depth way. Talk us through that part of your life. Okay. Uh, I'll start with Columbia, actually. I've been working, as you mentioned, most people who work in tech have been working remotely for quite a number of years. I started working remotely about eight years ago, and this is really when I launched my remote agency because- most of my clients were not in the same region that I was in. I was already working remotely. So from Vancouver, British Columbia, I realized that I actually don't need to stay here. And there was a thriving community of, we'll call them, quote, digital nomads. I don't really like that term. But at the time, there was a really big shift in the way that people were working. So you found these areas where people would go work remotely. They would live and work. 
it wasn't traveling. It was you would literally go somewhere, live and work. And so that's what I did four years ago. I selected Medellin, Colombia. And everybody always asks me, why did you select Medellin, Colombia? Why didn't you go to Bali? Why didn't you go to Mexico? Not exactly. Saint-Tropez, right? (laughs) Exactly. And uh, and I'll share some things if people are thinking about working remotely. So one of the reasons was... Medellin, Colombia was in the same time zone that I needed to work uh, in. Very important. I, I needed to work in the Pacific or Eastern um, time zone, and Colombia met that criteria. Also, working really good working internet. So, based on my research, they had really good working internet. There was a community of other expats. So, if I needed to speak English, that that wouldn't have been a problem. The weather was fantastic. It's known as the eternal city of spring and it also wasn't too far if I needed to get back home for any family emergencies so those were all the factors that went into my decision and so every winter I would best time what (laughs) how how cold is it in Vancouver in the winter minus what Uh, it it actually barely gets to minus so we uh, operate in celsius so I'd say zero right zero is probably the coldest not too cold Exactly. I'm not really a winter person, unfortunately. Same. So every every fall I'll be winter, coming with I you would, next year. <laughs> you can come with me, Dee. We're gonna go to South America. We'll bring Joanne. Be better for my better for my. Yeah, we definitely bring Joanne. I. It will be better for my Spanish as well, which I need to perfect. <laughs> oh, perfecto, perfecto. I actually did meet a few uh, a few Brits there. So every fall winter, I would go to Medellin, Colombia, spend about four to six months there, and I really. Besides not physically being in Vancouver, nothing really shifted in my life because A, all my clients were remote anyway. B, I can I could still communicate with my friends and family because of this marvelous technology that we have. We could do Zoom calls, FaceTime calls, WhatsApp video calls. I was still able to keep in touch. And you were living your life, right? You were just living your life working, but in a beautiful environment, great weather and so forth. Exactly. And learning Spanish. And learning Spanish. Additional additional opportunity, right? Exactly. And it really expanded my view on, well, how can people really live work nowadays? We don't need to be in an office. Of course, it's lovely to get the FaceTime with your team members and your clients from time to time. But is it really necessary? It got me thinking about that. Totally. And I think it's very interesting. um, Having taken a little cross-section of my own friends and people I know here in, in London town. You know, one, obviously people are desperate to go somewhere else, just be what I would say elsewhere, you know. In French, we talk about being ailleurs, no, just, just somewhere else. And there's a, a profound desire for that because of this hyper-locality in which we have been plunged, you know, without our own, you know, volition. Um, also, People are understanding they don't necessarily need to live in large cities. And I think it's given, this time has given a lot of people cause for reflection. You know, whether you're, uh, you know, younger and no ties, you decide to go off and, you know, go somewhere else for six months. Or some of the um, founders who've been on our Center for Entrepreneurs program who are uh, building fast scaling businesses very successfully in many cases, they are taking their management team or their team and they're going somewhere else. And pre-COVID, it was actually often more fun, more efficient and cheaper to take the team to Bali for two months in the winter than to stay in in Shoreditch, you know? I also think that we're going to see more of people doing a little bit what you're doing and maybe maybe taking two months and going and basing themselves somewhere else. It could be Greece. It could be, you know, where they get the the, the benefits of the weather and another culture, but but can operate and function and work along the lines that you talked about. So, Alice, a couple more questions before we wrap. Tell us a little bit about your other interest, you know, and and I think one, it's very interesting to me personally, but I think sharing with all our listeners is a wonderful thing too, because often people feel overwhelmed. They've got their work, they're this or that, they don't have time. I always think, you know, if you do more, you get more done as such. And if you learn more, it will somewhere have a relevance to what you are doing. I mean, I studied languages, as you know, much of which was around literature. That has saved me so many times in my life and also in my work life indirectly. You know, it's, it's had a use and performed a role, um, you know, a, a multiple roles, in fact. But tell us about your ongoing learning and the things you're passionate about and what that brings to the rest of your life. Oh, I think it is. I always say, always be learning. 
always be learning, especially now. And I also add something. I think be very careful with the content that you consume. There is so much information out there. I think it's, we would all agree, this is the time of information overload, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a story about a political situation, economics, COVID, anything. Be very discerning about where you want to learn from. And I'll say that... Such a good point, actually. Yeah, my, my preference right now as somebody who is quite busy, and I'd be interested to hear what you use as well, but podcasts... Podcasts have really been my preferred way of learning, which is why I love your podcast, <laughs> Double Espresso with D. Um, it's a really, I will say, efficient way to learn. You can speed up the audio if you'd like. You can save tracks. You can create a playlist. You can listen to your podcast while you're cleaning, while you're walking, while you're working out. Oh, totally. It's fantastic. So, you use the time, yeah. right? Exactly. We're also pressed for time. We don't realistically have that much time to read multiple books a week. And if you do, kudos to you. That's fantastic. But definitely lean on what tools and resources work for you. Mine is podcasts. I also am lucky to have friends who have very similar interests. And I think after learning something, it's really important to spark discussion, to actually discuss it. Because once you learn something, that's great. But if you can actually teach it, to others, that's really where the learning is crystallized, right? In your brain. Oh, 100%. So for instance, right now, I'm really obsessed with the topic of philosophy, moral philosophy. Uh, It's interestingly, because I was watching The Good Place on Netflix during the pandemic, and I just started thinking about, wow, there are so many different philosophers out there that I don't even know about. So let me listen to a few podcasts. Let me talk to a few friends about this. There's also podcast discussion groups. Um, I love the one on Podacy. There's also Podcast Brunch Club. I use my different WhatsApp groups to spark discussions with friends at any That's given time. That's fantastic, right? Yeah, so that would be um, my suggestion for the resources. And so as for what I'm learning right now, as I mentioned, moral philosophy, you know, you mentioned Bitcoin, blockchain, digital currencies um, with a finance background. I was really interested in blockchain when it emerged a few years ago. I can understand what a ledger is. I understand that it is a very complicated topic for a lot of people. And I think it's important to stay up to date with this. Oh, I couldn't a lot agree of more. companies, exactly, a lot of companies are now accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment. In fact, I think the country of El Salvador has said we we will accept Bitcoin everywhere. Stay up to date with what an NFT is. Even if you don't have time to deep dive, can you listen to a 15, 20 minute podcast on your commute? Right. So I, I couldn't agree more. So Alice, I could talk to you all day and, and look forward to having more time together soon. I definitely have to do the strengths assessment and I'm super psyched about doing that. Oh my gosh. I will send you an assessment and then we can actually talk through your I results. I would if you'd love like. that. I am so excited. Um, but just a couple of questions from me to wrap, which I always ask my guests. What's the best piece of advice you've been given in your life? Question one. I might cheat and I might give several. Yes, of course. <laughs> piece, even better. Pieces, yeah, pieces of advice. Somebody told me once, don't take advice from anybody unless you want their life. And I thought this was really interesting. And that's a really you know, good we talked one. About, we talked about all the different forms of content that's out there, right, Dee? So much. Yeah, overwhelming. A lot of it's rubbish. It's, exactly. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion on something. And at the end of the day, if you're going to take advice, think about whether you want that person's life. Do you respect how they live their life? Do they have the same values as you? So that really permeates into my... I love um, that one. It's so true. Because often just <laughs> on, you know, because on that point, um, I was talking with one of my guests recently, Sahar, about when you have an idea, you know, when you're in, in your head about doing something, it's best to keep it to yourself. And if you need advice, go to people who can give you very specific advice. You know, it could be sector expertise. It could be operational expertise. I'm talking in business terms. Because if you go out and you start sounding people out, they can kill it for you straight away. And actually, their advice may not be that great. You know, they may not be the people to advise you, but they can be so discouraging. So I totally am am with you on that one. So give us another one. (laughs) Okay, exactly. Okay, I'll give another one. And I think this is really important for founders, anyone, um, any leader. 
true freedom is being disliked. And I'll tell you why. I think a lot of us are people pleasers. Yeah. We talked about being over Absolutely. accommodators, overgivers, especially high achievers. You want everybody to like you. The reality is when you're a founder, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're a senior leader, you have to be okay with not getting everybody's approval. That's really how you know you're sticking to your values. You're not for everybody. Not everybody's going to love your product or your service or your idea or your opinions. And that's okay. And once we can accept that, isn't that true freedom? Oh, that, that to totally. To really not totally. care what everybody yeah. thinks about yeah. you. Because of course, as we all know, you know, as I always say to my kids, when they want to listen to me, you know, where the, where the attention goes, the energy flows. And we automatically put our attention into the thing that's bothering us or the person that's bothered us or the person we think hasn't come on side in our board meeting or whatever it is, right? And if we know that we're doing the right thing, that shouldn't matter. We should just move along from it, right? But I think it's nature. It's human nature. Obviously, some people are more accommodating than others. It's there, you know, the, the, the crowd pleasers. It's, it's a big theme for a lot of people. A lot of people who are very social and outgoing and so forth. I say, give us one more before I ask you my last question. One more piece of advice. Okay, well, this is These my advice. so good. <laughs> I'm, a little, I'm cheating a little bit because this is my advice that I tell everybody, but uh, clarity no, no, creates no. calm. Clarity creates calm. You know, you're a lover of language and language is D and we talk about communication. Clarity creates calm, whether it's clarity for yourself Clarity for your team, clarity with your partner, clarity with your family, just clarity creates calm. So whenever possible, don't be afraid to ask for clarity. Don't be afraid to provide clarity. Don't be afraid to be direct with what you're looking for, what you expect from other people. And I think as well, clarity de-stresses. I spoke on a panel recently, which was all about um, uh, female wealth, uh, you know, with, with, with a starting point that, um, you know, in this country, certainly only 3% of venture funding goes to female backed businesses. And a lot of women, I mean, it's just an aberration in this time in which we live. It's totally unacceptable. And when you see the raw data, it's pretty astounding and not in a good way, but also managing your wealth. And, and one of the things that, or, you know, or, or whatever it looks like to you, whatever your, your income looks like in aggregate and the whole theme of know your money will take the sting and the stress out of managing your money and building your money and making it work for you and so forth. So I totally, I totally um, support that point. So Alice, one final little question from me. If you could have, because this is all about coffee, of course, as well, which I love so much myself, who would you have coffee with? If you could have coffee with anyone, past or present, who, who might that be and why? I love Lynn manuel Miranda. He is the creator of Hamilton. He's also the creator of In the Heights, which is going to launch this summer. And he explores a topic that I really love discussing, which is death. He explores this theme in most of his work, and he talks about legacy. He talks about the concept of time. What are you doing with your remaining time on earth? What kind of legacy are you leaving? And I would just love to have a conversation with him about that. Well, maybe, maybe that can happen now that you've put it out there. Right? Yeah, he has a really good um, he has a really good episode on uh, BBC's Desert Island Disc. If anyone wants to listen to that about Lin Manuel Miranda, <laughs> which is wonderful, right? They get the best people. Absolutely. Listen, Alice, it's been such a joy to see you and be with you and to share with you. And thank you for sharing with all of us. And um, I can't wait for more very very soon. Thank you so much, Dee. This is great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Double Espresso with Dee, with me, Dee Sterling. If you enjoyed it, I'd love you to review and subscribe to the podcast so we can share these amazing stories with others. I'd also love to connect with you, so feel free to contact me via Instagram DM at D Double Espresso. Until the next time, au revoir.